0: Welcome to the Tory Podcast Tales from Near and Far Read to you by Protum Data A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens Read to you by Protum Data Chapter four England under Athelstan and the Six Boy Kings Part one. Athelstan, the son of Edward the Elder, succeeded that king. He reigned only 15 years, but he remembered the glory of his grandfather, the great Alfred, and governed England well. He reduced the turbulent people of Wales and obliged them to pay him a tribute in money and in cattle and to send him their best hawks and hounds. He was victorious over the Cornishmen who were not yet quite under the Saxon government. He restored such of their laws as were good, and had fallen to disuse, made some new wise laws, and took care of the poor and weak. A strong alliance made against him by Anlaf, a Danish prince, Constantine, King of the Scots, and the people of North Wales, he broke and defeated in one great battle long famous for the vast numbers slain in it. After that, he had a quiet reign. The lords and ladies about him had leisure to become polite and agreeable, and foreign princes were glad, as they have sometimes been since, to come to England on visits to the English court. When Athelstan died at 47 years old, his brother Edmund, who was only 18, became king. He was the first of six boy kings, as you will presently know. They call him the Magnificent, because he showed a taste for improvement and refinement. But he was beset by the Danes, and had a short and troubled reign, which came to a troubled end. One night, when he was feasting in his hall, and had eaten much and drunk deep, he saw among the company a noted robber named Leof, who had been banished from England. Made very angry by the boldness of this man, the king turned to his cupbearer and said, Robert sitting at the table yonder who for his crimes is an outlaw in the land a hunted wolf whose life any man may take at any time command that robber to depart I will not depart said Leof. no said the king no by the Lord said Leof. upon that the king rose from his seat and making passionately at the robber and seizing him by his long hair tried to throw him down. But the robber had a dagger underneath his cloak and, in the scuffle, stabbed the king to death. That done, he set his back against the wall and fought so desperately that although he was soon cut to pieces by the king's armed men, and the wall and pavement were splashed with his blood. Yet it was not before he had killed and wounded many of them. You may imagine what rough lives the kings of those times led, when one of them could struggle, half-drunk, with a public robber in his own dining hall, and be stabbed in presence of the company who ate and drank with him. Then succeeded the boy-king Edred, who was weak and sickly in body, but of a strong mind. And his armies fought the Northmen, the Danes, the Norwegians, or the Sea Kings, as they were called, and beat them for the time. And in nine years, Edred died and passed away. Then came the boy-king Edwey, 15 years of age, but the real king, who had the real power, was a monk named Dunstan, a clever priest, a little mad, and not a little proud and cruel. Dunstan was then abbot of Glastonbury Abbey, where the body of King Edmund the Magnificent was carried to be buried while yet a boy, he had got out of his bed one night, being then in a fever, and walked about Glastonbury Church, where it was under repair, and because he did not tumble off some scaffolds that were there, and break his neck. It was reported that he had been shown over the building by an angel. He had also made a harp that was said to play of itself which it very likely did, as Aeolian harps which are played by the winds and are now understood always too. For these wonders he had been once denounced by his enemies, who were jealous of his favour with the late King Ethelston as a magician. And he had been waylaid, bound hand and foot, and thrown into a marsh, But he got out again, somehow, to cause a great deal of trouble yet. The priests of those days were, generally, the only scholars. They were learned in many things. Having to make their own convents and monasteries and uncultivated grounds that were granted to them by the crown, it was necessary that they should be good farmers and good gardeners or their lands would have been too poor to support them. For the decoration of the chapels where they prayed and for the comfort of the refectories where they ate and drank, it was necessary that there should be good good carpenters, good smiths, good painters, among them. For their greater safety in sickness and accidents, living alone by themselves in solitary places, it was necessary that they should study the virtues of plants and herbs, and should know how to dress cuts, burns, calls and bruises, and how to set broken limbs. Accordingly, they taught themselves and one another, a great variety of useful arts, and became skillful in agriculture, medicine, surgery and handicraft. And when they wanted the aid of any little piece of machinery, which would be simple enough now, but was marvellous then, to impose a trick upon the poor peasants, they knew very well how to make it and did make it many a time, and often, I have no doubt. Dunstan, abbot of Glastonbury Abbey, was one of the most sagacious of these monks. He was an ingenious smith, and worked at a forge in a little cell. The cell was made too short to admit of his lying at full length when he went to sleep and if that did any good to anybody. And he used to tell the most extraordinary lies about demons and spirits who he said came there to persecute him. For instance, he related that one day when he was at work, the devil looked in that little window and tried to tempt him to lead a life of idle pleasure, whereupon, having his pincers in the fire, red hot, he seized the devil by the nose and put him to such pain that his bellowings were heard for miles and miles. Some people are inclined to think this nonsense a part of Dunstan's madness, for his head never quite recovered the fever but I think not. I observed that it induced the ignorant people to consider him a holy man and that it made him very powerful, which was exactly what he always wanted. (laughs) Then came the boy king Edgar, called the Peaceful, 15 years old. Dunstan, still being the real king, drove all married priests out of the monasteries and abbeys and replaced them by solitary monks like himself, of the rigid order called the Benedictines. He made himself Archbishop of Canterbury for his greater glory and exercised such power over the neighbouring British princes and so collected them about the king that once, when the king held his coat at Chester and went on the River Dee to visit the monastery of St John, the eight oars of his boat were pulled, as the people used to delight in relating in stories and songs by eight crowned kings and steered by the King of England. As Edgar was very obedient to Dunstan and the monks, they took great pains to present him as the best of kings. But he was really profligate, debauched and vicious. He once forcibly carried off a young lady from the convent at Wilton and Dunstan, pretending to be very much shocked condemned him to not wear his crown upon his head for seven years. No great punishment, I dare say, as it can hardly have been a more comfortable ornament to wear than a stewpan without a handle. His marriage with his second wife, Elfrida, is the worst events of his reign. Hearing of the beauty of this lady, he dispatched his favourite courtier, Ethelwald, to her father's castle in Devonshire to see if she was really as charming as fame reported. Now, she was so exceedingly beautiful that Ethelwold fell in love with her himself and married her, but he told the king that she was only rich, not handsome. The king, suspecting the truth when they came home, resolved to pay the newly married couple a visit and suddenly told Æthelwold to prepare for his immediate coming. Æthelwold, terrified, confessed to his young wife what he had said and done and implored her to disguise her beauty by some ugly dress or silly manner that he might be safe from the king's anger. She promised that she would, but she was a proud woman who would far rather have been a queen than the wife of a courtier. She dressed herself in her best dress and adorned herself with her richest jewels, and when the king came, presently he discovered the cheat. So he caused his false friend, Ethelwold to be murdered in a wood and married his widow, this bad Elfrida. Six or seven years afterwards, he died and was buried as if he had been all that the monks said he was, in the Abbey of Glastonbury, which he, or Dunstan for him, had much enriched. England, in one part of his reign, was so troubled by wolves which, driven out of the open country, hid themselves in the mountains of Wales when they were not attacking travellers and animals, that the tribute payable by the Welsh people was forgiven them on condition of their producing, every year, 300 wolves' heads. And the Welshmen were so sharp upon the wolves to save their money, that in four years there was not a wolf left. Then came the boy-king Edward, called the martyr, from the manner of his death. Elfrida had a son named Ethelred, for whom she claimed the throne. But Dunstan did not choose to favour him, and he made Edward king. The boy was hunting one day, down in Dorsetshire, when he rode near the Corfey castle where Elfrida and Ethelred lived. Wishing to see them kindly, he rode away from his attendants and galloped to the castle gate, where he arrived at twilight and blew his hunting horn. "'You are welcome, dear king,' said Elfrida, coming out with her brightest smiles. Pray you dismount and enter. Not so, dear madam, said the king. My company will miss me and fear that I have met with some harm. Please you to give give me a cup of wine that I may drink here in the saddle to you and my little brother and so ride away with the good speed I have made in riding here. Elfrida." Going in to bring the wine, whispered an armed servant, one of her attendants, who stole out of the darkening gateway and crept round behind the king's horse. As the king raised the cup to his lips, saying, Held, to the wicked woman who was smiling on him, and to his innocent brother whose hand she held in hers, who was only ten years old, this armed man made a spring and stabbed him in the back. He dropped the cup and spurred his horse away, but soon fainting with loss of blood, dropped from the saddle and in his fall, entangled one of his feet in the stirrup. The frightened horse dashed on trailing his rider's curls upon the ground, dragging his smooth young face through ruts and stones and briers and fallen leaves and mud, until the hunters, tracking the animals caused by the king's blood, caught his bridle and released the disfigured body. Then came the sixth and the last of the boy kings, Ethelred, whom Elfrida when he cried out at the sight of his murdered brother riding away from the castle gate, unmercifully beat with the torch that she snatched from one of the attendants. The people so disliked this boy, on account of his cruel mother and the murder she had done to promote him, that Dunstan would not have had him for king and would have made Edgitha, the daughter of the dead King Edgar, and of the lady whom he stole out of the convent at Wilton, Queen of England, if she would have consented. But she knew of the stories of the youthful kings too well, and would not be persuaded from the convent where she lived in peace. So, Dunstan put Ethelred on the throne, having no one else to put there, and gave him the nickname of the Unready, knowing that he wanted resolution and firmness. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment, and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.